0: So this morning we'll continue our study on the commandments of Jesus, and we'll be taking a look, as John Carl mentioned, at the subject of humility. Humility. There are many themes that we can see as we look at the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus, and uh, there's quite a few that we frequently encounter. One, for example, would be the topic of faith. It's mentioned numerous times throughout the Lord's ministry. Many parables have faith as their focus, but one that we often don't think about that much is the topic of humility. Jesus didn't just remind his disciples about humility once or twice, uh, but he brought that topic before them numerous times. And We'll start off by taking a look at a few examples about five or so different examples we'll go through quickly. You don't have to turn to all of these. Um, If you want to turn somewhere, you can turn to Philippians 2, which your brother read this morning. I was happy to hear, and we'll be taking that as a text. But first, let's look at some of these examples. In Luke 14, the Lord gives a parable about people invited to a wedding feast. He exhorts them, to start off by taking the lowly place, taking the lowly seat. And he closes that parable with this phrase. He says, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Second example in Luke 18, he gives a parable of two men who go to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And there we read the following verses. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for, and here's this phrase again, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Third example in Luke chapter 22, the disciples were arguing with each other. And there we read Now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. The fourth example in Matthew 23, Jesus was speaking with the crowds and his disciples, and he was warning them about the works of the Pharisees who perform their deeds in order to be seen by men. And again he closes that particular segment and we hear him say, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. A fifth example, perhaps one that many of you have thought of as we've taken up this topic in John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Peter is taken aback at first, and the Lord teaches a bit about spiritual cleanliness, but towards the end of the portion there we read, So when he had washed their feet... Taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. These are only a few. You could keep finding more passages. You see the same phrase repeated oftentimes. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But hopefully I've made it clear that these are not parallel passages. These are different times, different specific instances in which the Lord, in a certain situation or in a certain parable that he gave, closed with that same phrase. And so humility is a significant theme in the Gospels. We see in these passages a clear contrast between pride or exalting oneself and humility. And a great biblical definition or explanation of humility can be found, as I said before, in Philippians chapter 2, and that's where I want to spend a little bit of time next. I'd like to turn there, Philippians Chapter 2. Again, it was encouraging to see the Holy Spirit working this morning as that passage was read at the end of the Lord's Supper. Philippians chapter 2, and starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being made in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. Sorry, I read that wrong. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There's much to learn from this passage, but as it pertains to humility, I'd like us to observe three things. First of all, this concept of a mindset. And you heard me emphasizing, probably if you were listening to my very emphatic emphasis. I've been told that I'm pretty monotonic, so that was a joke. The word mind, as I read that passage. Let this mind, being of one accord, of one mind, but in lowliness of mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so... We'll come back to that in a moment. Secondly, I want you to notice a practical definition for humility is given to us in verses 3 and 4. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. True humility says... Others are more important than me. That's what true humility says. And thirdly, I want to point out the Lord Jesus Christ's example to us. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and the place of a bondservant and being obedient being obedient. So we see here that humility starts in our minds. Humility manifests itself as actions and behavior, but it starts inwardly in our minds. We must have a mindset of lowliness. It's one thing to feign humility or to pretend humility or to act out humility. You've seen false humility before, right? Sometimes it's even done uh, sarcastically or for humorous purposes. And we've also likely all seen that and even done it ourselves. But true humility, as I said before, says, these other people are actually more important than I am. True humility says it doesn't actually matter if I'm right. right? These are the things that a mindset of humility says and believes. And from whence can we obtain such a mindset? How can we switch off our all-too-natural selfishness and self-focus and turn our attention to others in this way? The answer is given to us in this passage as well, in verse 5 where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We can have true humility by taking the mind of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2, we have a passage that reminds us that through the Holy Spirit that indwells each believer, we have access to the power of Christ's mind and Christ's life. Let's go there and read it together. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10. Starting in verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the thing of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ call your attention again to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We have received the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And then at the end of verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. We have access to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians that Christ lives through me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Through reliance on the Lord Jesus day by day, walking by the Spirit, feeding on Him and on His Word as we learned this past Wednesday, right? True food indeed. We can have this mind in us which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Studying and meditating upon the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate way to wash ourselves in this example of perfect humility. The Lord Jesus' very act of coming here, as we read in Philippians 2, was a perfect example of lowliness and humility and obedience. The way he came, the fact that he came, how he conducted himself, how he didn't answer or perform works in so many instances when he could have, how he uh, withstood the accusations that were made uh, towards the end of his time here on earth. All of these things and many more are glorious examples to us of humility. And we're taught here that it's not just about reading words, but it's about feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ and walking by the Spirit through communion with Him and through spending time in His Word transforms us more into the image of Him. So you're not going to find success by trying harder and harder and harder to be a humble person. You're going to find success when you lay down your life and you allow the Lord Jesus Christ to live through you more and more because he is humble, and you will be humble as well. Another thing we can notice about humility in our daily walk is that perhaps more than any other aspect of Christian living, the Lord gives us tremendous opportunities to practice. (laughs) Every day, countless times per day, there are arise opportunities in our lives to practice humility. And sometimes we do a good job and sometimes we do a miserable job. If you're looking to get some reps in on humility, my friends, you won't have to wait very long. Your very next conversation, your next opportunity to serve someone else in some way, small or large, Your next opportunity to be served by somebody else without turning away from it. Your next prayer. Every day, countless times, we have opportunities to practice or not practice humility. Prayer is an interesting one, right? Even in our prayer we can have an attitude of pride or an attitude of humility. Indeed, one of the examples we covered earlier in Luke chapter 18 recounted that parable that I read to you in which the Lord compared the prayers of those two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so we see that humility is not just beneficial for our interactions with one another, but also for our interactions and our attitude God let's explore this a bit more because it's really vital it's very important as it pertains to our relationship and communion with God in Christ we cannot interact with God except that we come before him in humility what does the scripture tell us God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble This is true from the very start of our Christian experience when we come to God for salvation. Let's talk a little bit about salvation. Hopefully, all of you in this room already know and understand that salvation and eternal security and the promise of eternal life with God in heaven comes by simple faith, by believing in and accepting that finished work of the Lord Jesus in which he went to the cross and died in our place, taking our sins upon himself, making atonement for us before the Father and satisfying God as it pertains to the matter of our sin. A person doesn't get right with God by doing good things or paying off their debt. They must recognize that Christ has done the work for them and accept what he has done, dying for their sins, taking their place, rather than anything they themselves might try to do. Hopefully you all already understand that. This belief, this acceptance, is in itself an act of true humility. Those of you that came to Christ easily may not think of it that way. right? They say a fish is the last one to notice the water because they spend so much time in the water. They're the last ones to notice it. When you come to God for salvation, you are saying, first of all, God, I have a problem. I am a sinner. I have failed. I have fallen short, and I continually fall short of your standard and your holiness each day and each moment. I am a wicked sinner, and I can't change that about myself. Secondly, When you come to God in this way, you're saying, Furthermore, God, I see now, I see now that I can't offer you anything or do anything to help my pitiful situation. Unless you would find some way to save me, I have no hope. And finally, you, the sinner, are confessing, God, I have heard how you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the salvation that I need. I couldn't help myself, but you loved me enough to provide your perfect Son as a sacrifice in my place. I believe that this is true, that Jesus is your Son, that he died for my sins, that he rose again on the third day as a proof that his work was fully acceptable to you. I confess that he is my Lord and Savior, and I accept his death for me in my place as your free and offered gift of salvation to me. Thank you, God, for this is an incredible gift that I did nothing to deserve. That's humility. A sinner who is truly saved by God has recognized their complete dependence on Him and recognizes their complete helplessness apart from the Lord Jesus day by day, even after they become a believer. Over time, a Christian will become even more aware of this truth as they learn more and more about how wicked they are in and of themselves and how deeply God loves them anyway. To illustrate this, I want to look at Mark chapter 10. I recently heard a sermon on this passage and it struck me in a new way and I'd like to share some of that with you. Jesus teaches this to us in Mark chapter 10, and we'll start reading in verse 13. Mark ten thirteen. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell what you have and give to the poor, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. One of the simple but very important things that Jesus is teaching us here is that we must be with God as little children. Think about little children. Little children do not bring their own provisions, their own riches, their own food, their own money, their own works, their own clothes, their own wisdom. They don't bring any of that to bear in their situation. Rather, we see them, even here at the chapel, a beautiful illustration, clinging to their parents' legs and looking out on the world from a place of safety and protection and complete dependence. They have no pride in this matter. They willingly run and cling to their parents and cast themselves upon them in all things. In the same way Jesus says we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we receive from God's hand the blessing of salvation in the same way. Humbly, with no pride, with nothing to offer, and in complete dependence and reliance on God. a verse that brings this out to us is found in 1 Peter. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. A humble attitude before God is not just a key element in salvation, however. Another thing for us to note today about humility is that it is an antidote to pride. It's an antidote to pride. And pride is a disease that we are all stricken with. And it's as detrimental a problem as you can find in the course of human events. Let's take for an example Satan himself, probably the worst being we can imagine, right? Isaiah chapter 14 has some verses that speak to us about Satan. I'll read a few of them here, starting in verse 12. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Here we're reminded that Satan's great sin originally was pride. We know from passages like this one and also from others like Ezekiel chapter 28 that also speaks of Satan that he was created as a high angelic being, a covering cherub, it says in Ezekiel 28 but he became proud in his heart. Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen tells us that his heart was lifted up because of his beauty and he corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his splendor. And certainly we can see the pride evident in this passage that we read in Isaiah 14. But I want you to stop and think about this for a little bit. I think we gloss over this when we when we consider this. We know that despite his evil, Satan is a wise and ancient being. He was there in the garden. He's been around for a long time, and as we can read in Ezekiel 28, he was created to be a very senior part of God's echelon of angelic beings.
1: He knows, or at least
0: he knew at one point, that he was created by God, and what his original purpose was. God reminds us in Ezekiel 28 that Satan was perfect in his ways from the day he was created. It actually says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. As a created being, Satan would have had at one point he would have known and understood that no matter how great his splendor or power or beauty, he could never... Be as great as the one who created him and gave him a purpose and a role. God's word tells us that in many places, in many places, that all things were created by him that is God and through him and for him, and that he, God, upholds all things by the word of his power. And if we know this, how much more clearly obvious would this have been? to Lucifer. How could Satan ever think to raise himself above a God like that, who created him? When you consider this great question, this is when you realize the deadliest sting of pride. It brings blinding deception. One of the most powerful and most intelligent beings ever created was so blinded by pride that he would consider himself capable of usurping the very throne of Almighty God. Think about that. This is why Jesus tells us so confidently concerning Satan in John 8, verse 44, He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. You see, when we bring pride into our human relationships, it causes warring and fighting and strife. You can see that in the opening verses of James chapter 4 if you want to go look more at that. But when we bring pride into our relationship with God, it causes deception and blindness and believing only in lies. As I mentioned before, and it's quoted in James 4 and also 1 Peter 5, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humility is a very, very important thing for us. It's not just a nice-to-have. It's not just something that we should aspire to because it makes us nicer people or it makes us easier to deal with. We're told in 1 Peter 5.5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to live through us and bring about an attitude of true humility, we can receive and perceive and understand and see the truth. But when we allow pride to have its way in our relationship with others and especially in our relationship with God, we open ourselves up to all kinds of of terrible deception. Imagine Satan not even being able to realize that he could never hope to stand against the one who created him. Such an intelligent being, being so blinded by pride. If I asked you to quickly name one of the worst kings in Israel's history, many of you would no doubt think of Ahab? Did anybody think of Ahab? (laughs) There's uh, some other bad kings too, like Manasseh, but Ahab would be up there. In truth, he was one of the worst. And I want to read a couple of verses from 1 Kings 21 just so you can see something interesting. It starts in verse 25 of 1 Kings 21. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. We read that again, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Verse twenty six He behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes. That's the very next verse. I didn't skip anything. Verse 27. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Pretty interesting, right? The power of humility. We can't really have a relationship with God unless we come to him and humility. Both for salvation, but also in our daily communion and fellowship with him. As we read there in Mark 10, like a little child. Another quick aside to think about is found in the story of Moses. There was a time when Miriam and Aaron spoke out against Moses, right? Because he had married, they said because he had married a foreign woman. That's how the the chapter starts out. I I read this last night and I lost track of it, unfortunately. I think it's somewhere in Exodus. It would be great if I could find it. Numbers 12. Is it Numbers? I was definitely going to suffer there. Thank you. Ah, yes, thank you. Numbers 12. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken to us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now look at this parenthetical phrase in verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. In verse 4, Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. And so they came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow." And then, of course, Moses prays for her. But what I want to point out to you here is that Moses was very humble, more than any man on the face of the earth. He didn't seek to defend himself against Miriam and Aaron. And so who defended for him? God did, right? If you take your own defense up and you take your own rights, good for you. See how far that gets you. But if you're humble and you suffer wrongdoing quietly, God can then be free to speak for you and to defend you in due time, at the right time. In this case, it was immediate. In other cases, it may take some time. But when we are humble, we also allow place for the Lord to act as our representative. I want to close with a verse from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. You don't have to turn there. It reads like this. For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Let's close. Our Father, we thank you for so many rich treasures in your word that speak to us of this topic of humility. Father, we thank you for the perfect example that we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who could have revealed his glory in so many awesome ways and caused the whole earth to tremble in fear at his majesty. And yet he came so humbly as a servant. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit we would have this same mind. We would have each day a renewal from you to live humbly with one another, to esteem each other as more important than ourselves to die to ourselves and to serve one another. Father, these are very hard things for us. I would say these are impossible things for us, but with you, these things are possible as we yield ourselves to you. And so we ask you for strength and ability to walk in this fashion. Father, we thank you for the food that's set before us downstairs. We thank you for providing it to us. We could not provide even for our own needs were it not for you. We accept it from you, and we thank you for it, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.